Good morning, everyone. It's uh, lovely to be with you again. Thank you for this opportunity. But I do not thank you for giving me, uh, was it six chapters? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Yes, six chapters in Revelation. Although when you said Romans, I had one of those horrible feelings that um, I've had once or twice when I've been speaking, that I've prepared something and I've arrived at the location and I realize that um, they're, expecting, they're expecting me to speak on something else. And I thought, no, I ha- haven't got this wrong. Um, but, but even when um, I was told a few weeks ago, quite some time ago actually, that you were continuing your series in Revelation and going on from those perhaps easier to understand chapters, the, the early chapters where we had the letters to the churches. And I remember I spoke on one of those um, a few months ago. They're perhaps a little easier to understand than when we get into the middle section and the later chapters of, of Revelation. And so I, I don't really thank you for this, although it has been uh, challenging but enjoyable preparing. I guess one of the reasons why um, I and others uh, often find uh, a reluctance to speak on these passages is, is past experience. I remember in my youth that speaking about the book of Revelation and perhaps some of the prophetical books in the Old Testament was quite popular. And I remember uh, sitting under many messages on the book of Revelation where people used to analyze every character and every number and assign it a meaning. Um, I remember in the uh, mid-1970s when the, uh, the common market, it was, as it was called then, was seen to be the evil of the world. I mean, you keep think that anyway, don't they? But um, uh, to see the great e- be seen as a great evil, and it was about to expand to ten nations. And somebody picked up on the early verses in chapter thirteen of Revelation, where it talks about a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns. There it is. That's the uh, that's the common market. We have it there in Revelation, the fulfilment of that prophecy. Well, I believe we're up to twenty-eight nations now. But I'm sure you can find that number somewhere in Revelation and assign some interpretation to it. And so the temptation, therefore, has been for me, and I think for others in the church, uh, to almost ignore these chapters, or perhaps to leave it to the experts, to the Roger Chilverses of this world, um, you know, to those who've been to Bible college or have got a, a theological degree, and they can interpret these chapters perhaps more readily Um, But I don't believe that's the right way to approach it, even those of us who wouldn't call ourselves Bible scholars. There is a call in chapter 13, and I think John is using the very words of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said on a few occasions after he spoke his parables, which were difficult to understand, he says, if you have a pair of ears, listen. In other words, think about this. Some people say that Jesus told his parables to make things clear. No, Jesus told his parables to make people think because the interpretation wasn't immediately obvious. So he had to go away and talk about it and mull it over. What was meant by this? What was meant by that? And the same call we have here. Think about it. That's what he says in verse 9. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So the call of God is not to ignore this, although that's my temptation. Uh, Don't ignore it. Think about it. And there's a call also in verse um, 18 where it says, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number. And it's saying, 
you need wisdom to understand some of the numbers that are used here, and particularly that's referring to the number 666. And boy, haven't we made a lot of that over the centuries. Well, as Phil said, we're going to concentrate on one particular chapter, and it's chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, please turn to chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. That's where we are. Romans 12 wouldn't be bad. It's a nice bit. That's got past the hard stuff as well, Romans 12. Therefore, in the light of God's mercies, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. No, we're not doing that. We're doing uh, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And with reference to Bruce Lee, we'll call this Enter the Dragon. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time and time and half a time out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who kept God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Well, what do we make of that? Now, I'm not going to assign meanings and interpretations to every character that we're introduced to in this passage or try and interpret the the numbers that are mentioned here, again, I still need a great deal of wisdom of getting my mind around that. But I think one of the things that it calls me to do from this chapter is to think bigger. 
to think bigger. Do you remember, those of you who've seen the film Jaws, that wonderful scene right at the beginning when two men go off in a fairly small boat to try and catch this great white shark that's been attacking um, uh, swimmers off the coast. And they think it's a fairly big shark, but these are professional men and they'll better get rid of this shark. And they're in this boat and they're chatting together. One guy is in the, um, the, uh, the wheelhouse steering it. The other fellow is at the back of the boat and he's throwing um, dead fish and offal and lots of gore into the sea to try and attract this shark. And suddenly this great big mouth appears out of the water. And then it just sinks back into the water. And nothing said, his jaw drops as he sees the size of this great white shark. And he backs into the wheelhouse. And what does he say? We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> we are going to need a bigger boat. This is beyond our experience. We thought it was this big. But it's this big. And that's one thing that chapter 12 does for us. It's a bigger revelation, as your title is. It's a drawing back of the curtain of bigger things that are going on. And we get so involved in our own world, our own bubble, don't we, that we forget that there's a bigger battle, there's a bigger thing going on behind the scenes. And so we have here a picture of conflict. The conflict between good and evil. The conflict between God and the dragon. And as I said, I'm, I'm not going to assign um, names to all the characters here, but the dragon is very clearly identified. It says in verse 9 that the dragon is the devil. It's Satan. That's who is being spoken about here. And we have a picture of the battle that has been going on between good and the devil between him and angels, we have that in verse 7. In verse 13, he picks a battle with the woman. Before that, he picks a battle with the woman's child in verse 4. Then he picks a battle with the woman's offspring. So it's a picture of conflict, yeah? Now, of course, the way that we generally interpret Revelation is seeing it all in the future. That's what Jesus says in, in chapter 1 when Jesus says he's um, right therefore in verse 19 of chapter 1. He says to John, right therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And so generally the way we would interpret so much of Revelation is saying, well, it's yet to be. This is talking about the future. But we need to take a bit of a broader sweep than that. There's no doubt that some of the things that John refers to, not necessarily here in chapter 12, but in some of the earlier chapters, in chapter 11 in particular, he's actually talking about things that were happening at that moment he was writing, contemporary events. He's talking about how Jerusalem is destroyed and trampled by the Gentiles. Well, that took place just a few decades earlier than John was writing these words. Also, John writes of things that were in the future for him, but are in our past. Because this was written 2,000 years ago. So there are things that have taken place since John wrote this. He speaks about earthquakes in many places. That part of the world has been wracked by earthquakes for hundreds, thousands of years. And so he's writing about contemporary events. He's writing about events that were in the future for him, but not for us. They're in our past. 
And of course, he was writing about events that are yet to take place for all of us. When he speaks about a new heaven and a new earth, that has not yet taken place. So it's the future for all of us at the moment. But also, I believe there's a sense in which Paul, uh, in which John, I'm getting the Romans problem here. <laughs> there's also a sense in which John is not t- just talking about contemporary events and stuff that's future for him but past for us. And he's also speaking about future for all of us. He's speaking about things in the past. Things that took place a long time ago. And I believe that one way we can understand chapter 12, it's an allegory, it's a picture of the conflict that has been going on between Satan and God since before the beginning of time. That started before the clock started. And the battle that was going on before the world was created. And then has taken place through the creation of the world. And one day will finish, as he says in chapter 20 and verse 10, where he says eventually the dragon is thrown into the lake of fire and Satan's destruction is final. And if we take that broader view, then I begin, we begin to see Satan's tactics, what he has been doing, what he is doing, what he is yet to do, and how Satan has always been at odds with God's plans, with his people, and with his Messiah. He's been the enemy of God for a long, long time. Battles have been raging in ways and in places and are yet to be fought that we have no idea of, no comprehension of, because we're here in this little bubble and we only experience the now, don't we? I finished reading a book over the summer called All Hell Let Loose. And it wasn't on Revelation. It was a a book by Max Hastings, who's a journalist and a historian, particularly on the Second World War. And it's his definitive book on the history of the Second World War. I finished it in the summer. I actually started it the summer before. It's been my um, holiday reading for two holidays. It's about this thick. It's a significant tome. Now, the reason I bought it in the first place is because I'm sort of interested in Second World War history, like lots of blokes of my age are. Strange. Wasn't brought up in it, but I was influenced by it. And so I thought, I'd like to read a definitive history of the Second World War. So I bought, this book came well recommended, All Hell Let Loose. If you'd have asked me before I read the book, give me a potted history of the Second World War, I could give it to you. Dunkirk, Battle of Britain, Battle of the Atlantic, um, El Alamein. Uh, then there was a few years where the tide began to turn. D-Day, uh, Battle of the Bulge, we went back a little bit. Then we won. In, we conquered Berlin and that was it. Okay, That's my view of the Second World War. What this book made me realize is that most of the battles took place not on the Western Front but the Eastern Front. Do you know, on one day, in one battle, on the Eastern Front between the Soviet forces and the Axis, the Germans, more people died, more civilians died on one day in one battle than in the whole of the war in the UK, both civilians and military dead. Millions died on one day. And yet, now I know one life is worth one life. The battles we fought were just as real and hurt just as much as the battles that took place in Stalingrad and other places. 
but the scale is so different. The, the, the total, sorry to baffle you with statistics now, more numbers coming your way. Um, the total deaths, both military and civilian, in the UK was 0.94% of the population. 0.94% of the population deaths in the Second World War in the UK. The Soviet Union, it was 14%. 14%. And it's a much bigger country, so you can sort of multiply it up. But again, it's, it's my bubble. I thought this was the Second World War. No! This is the Second World War. Now, our battles are very real, the ones that we fight as Christians. But there is a bigger battle going on. And that's what Revelation 12 does for us. It makes us realize that something's going on in a, on a scale and in a way that we need to open our eyes up to. But it's interesting whether it's on, as it were, our war front or on the bigger scale that we don't comprehend in other places, in other parts of the world, Satan's strategy has and continues to be exactly the same. What is his goal? Well, I think it's summed up in the last part of verse 4 when it says that the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Now, the child that's being spoken about here, I believe, is Jesus Christ. He's mentioned by name later on with the title Messiah, and the name Jesus is also used here as well. Because Satan's goal has and always will be to destroy, to render ineffective the work of Jesus Christ. That's his prime goal. And actually, if you think back through the Gospels, whenever Satan came on the scene, that's what he was trying to do. You see it in the Nativity, don't you? In the Incarnation, that Herod came along to try and snuff out Jesus right at the very beginning. We see it in the uh, Temptation, tried to get him to commit suicide. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, getting him to withdraw from the cross. Satan's purpose has always been to erase Jesus from the picture. That's what he wants to do. And that's what he still wants to do. I think we see that particularly today, and it's reflected in how it was seen in the early church as well. Do you remember that incident in Acts chapters 3 and 4 with the early church, a fledgling church? And Peter and John were responsible by the grace of God in restoring the legs back to that lame man at the beautiful gate. Lame from birth. And they said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And his legs were restored. And what was the battle that then went on with the religious authorities afterwards? It wasn't over the healing of a lame man. They almost said, heal as many lame men as you want, but don't mention the name of Jesus. Don't keep bringing Jesus into the conversation. So right at the beginning of the church, that was Satan's strategy. Oh, do good, but don't mention Jesus. And that is Satan's strategy today. The disciples said, we can't help but mention the name of Jesus. In fact, it's only by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you healed. And the temptation today is to remove Jesus from the conversation. Now, I believe in food banks. 
I believe in street pastors. I believe in a lot of the work that the church is doing today. But unless we bring Jesus into the conversation, we are being ineffective in the big scheme of things. The church of Jesus Christ must hold close to the name of Jesus because Satan wants to erase him from the conversation to take him out. It's what he was doing then. It's what he has always been doing. And Satan's goal, Satan's attack, was not only against the child, but it was against the offspring of the woman as well. You see that in verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Now, I think that could be a picture of the church. Sisters, brothers, that's you and me. Do you realize that you are in the crosshairs of Satan? He wants to attack you. He wants to render you ineffective. He wants to render the church ineffective. Perhaps by internal conflict. Oh, he's been successful in that area so often, hasn't he? Perhaps by ideological diktats that have somehow rendered the the force of a church, the effectiveness of a church in a a country ineffective because uh, laws have come in. But he doesn't always succeed there, does he? And it seems as if the church was... uh, just crushed to nothing in China at the end of the Second World War in the early 1950s with the onslaught of communism there. We have known that the church blossomed under that persecution and now is seen at the size of over 130 million. That's more than twice the size of our country and is now sending missionaries into other parts of the world. But Satan has tried to destroy the church and attack the church. Now, I know the church isn't perfect. Goodness me. I go to enough churches where I see enough problems. But I'm beginning to realize that every time I criticize the church, I'm doing Satan's work for him because he is trying to render ineffective the offspring of the woman, the church. And so what is Satan's goal? It's against Jesus. It's against the followers of Jesus. It's against God's people and the church. So how do we overcome? Well, verse 11 says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I think there are are three things there of how we can overcome the evil one. The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and sacrifice. The the lamb, you'll know in your studies in Revelation, is a a common image in Revelation. And that, again, is talking about Jesus Christ. And there's an incredible contrast here. I find this quite astonishing. See how the dragon is described in verse 3. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Um, I purposely didn't use any visual aids this morning because I think they could get corny. But can you imagine that sort of picture that I could put up to show what the dragon was like? Awesome, fearsome. And how do we overcome it? With a dead sheep. What? With the blood of the lamb. 
a dead young sheep. Oh, wow. There is such power in the death of Jesus Christ. And again, we're in our bubble, aren't we? What did the death of Jesus Christ accomplish? Well, it means I can be forgiven and I can go to heaven. Well, that's great. Amen for that. But it accomplished something in the cosmic realm that we know nothing of. There is such power in the cross of Christ that it not only rescues us, it defeats Satan as well. Do you believe that? That when Jesus said, it is finished, the whole universe shook. How do we overcome Satan? Well, with what Jesus Christ has done for us. And by the word of their testimony. Now, what's that? Well, there's a couple of ways we could perhaps understand that. The word of their testimony. Well, what's, what's the testimony of a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, it's how they became a Christian. It's my story. Yes. But it's, it's a bit more than just my story. It's Jesus' story in me. Going back to what I just alluded to a few moments ago, Acts chapter 3 and 4, where you had that lame man who was over 40 years old who had his legs restored and he could walk again. Imagine afterwards if he was giving his testimony somewhere. He could say, well, I was born lame and um, I, I became a beggar and uh, I was outside the temple one day doing my normal job of begging and uh, Peter and John came along and they said a few things to me and, and I stood up and I can walk and now I'm a changed man. And everyone goes, yay, amen, hallelujah. That's his story, isn't it? That's truth. But it's only part of the story. That's just his story. It's not the Jesus story in him. Because what happened? Well, I was born lame, and I was begging for a long time, and I was doing my normal job, begging outside the temple in Jerusalem, and Peter and John came along, and they said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And I tell you, it was the name of Jesus that transformed my life. I, I sometimes am sad when I hear testimonies and I go away with the impression of the individual rather than what Jesus has done for that individual. That's the testimony that makes a difference and that's the testimony that, that gets one over on Satan. What Christ has done for me, how he has transformed my life, that's the word of testimony proclaiming the Christ story in me. The reason why I am what I am today is not because I'm a nice bloke. It's because Jesus is transforming me. So we gain the victory through the blood of the Lamb, what Christ did for us on the cross, through our testimony about what Jesus is doing in us. And then there is this element of sacrifice, of not counting their lives worth living. Reminds me of that great statement of one of the Ecuadorian martyrs back in the 1950s, 1956, Jim Elliott, uh, who said that um, he is no fool who gives that what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And then he gave his life for the Lord. A life lost, a, a life laid down for Jesus is not wasted we might look at it as a waste, but no, it's not a waste because it gains victory over the evil one. 
It's a fearsome weapon in the battle against Satan that people don't cling on to the now because they know that there's something better that God has for them. So how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, by living lives that are willing to be laid down for him. So big picture stuff. That's what we have here. A battle that's been going on for a long time in places, in ways, and on a scale that we cannot imagine. But Satan's goal has always been the same, to destroy Jesus and to destroy the followers of Jesus. How do we overcome? Well, by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, by proclaiming Jesus and by living and dying for him. May God challenge us. May God give us a glimpse of what he is doing in the, in the realms that we don't always appreciate so we can live more effectively for him. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you will take what is from you and apply it to our hearts and our minds. Help us to lift our eyes, Lord, to realize what you have done for us and how you have gained the victory over the evil one. So help us to use those weapons that you have put at our disposal so we can give great honor to your name. For we ask it in your name. Amen.